and welcome to Explain Me. My name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheta. We've got a great show planned today. We're going to discuss the Velvet Buzzsaw, the horror movie that everybody's talking about. Uh, go over some art news, namely Mary Boone's uh, pending sentencing for uh, falsifying tax documents, some art shows, some discussion about the uh, Amazon HQ plan, some decolonize this place, and some MFA or BFA, MFA, PhD, radical pedagogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the show rundown in a nutshell. Uh, but let's begin with uh, the Velvet Budsaw. Uh, William, you organized a screening uh, at Postmasters Friday night. Uh, how'd it go? Uh, I think we had a lot of fun. Um, the, the people, the food, and the cocktails were uh, a whole lot better than the movie itself. Uh, which I, I, a lot of people said afterwards that they probably wouldn't have gotten through the screening or the whole movie if they had just been watching it by themselves. So um, I, when I organized that screening, I, I fully expected the movie to be really bad, but that was the point of trying to get everyone together to watch it so we could kind of laugh through it and, uh, and have some fun, you know, around what seemed to be like a really kind of ridiculous movie. Right. Well, and so I was there too. Uh, there was maybe roughly 20 art critics, curators, artists, blah, 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 art professionals uh, gathered to watch this thing. Um, the setting was within uh, Jennifer Catron and uh, Paul Outlaw's show, which sort of happily had a lot of dovetails uh, into the movie because it was... There were a lot of maquettes depicting cult suicides and uh, horrific deaths. Yes, <laughs> and and the TV was situated right in front of a giant torso that was like a pincushion with these giant arrows and its arm chopped off, which you know is a little bit of foreshadowing for the film. And on the other <laughs> the other side of that, you could eat uh, marzipan torsos that were kept in a refrigerator inside the sculpture. <laughs> Um, yeah, so just a, a little bit about the film. Um, you know, I've written a review, which will probably be out by the time that this thing, uh, that this podcast airs. So, um, you know, basically I've described it as a tensionless Zoolander for the art world with a Beetlejuice <laughs> level of gore. Um, it's really boring for its simplicity simplicity yet surprisingly hard to follow um and i think like to just sort of give a basic plot summary um an aspiring gallerist named josephina played by zaw ashton ashton not sure if i'm saying her name right finds a treasure trove of creepy paintings by an undiscovered artist named ventral d's <laughs> which by the way i think is a riff on ventral disease which if you google it returns all sorts of images of penises uh, <laughs> <laughs> it had the ring of venereal disease yeah. right off the bat um anyway soon we learn that the artist is a serial killer uh the the unnamed artist was a serial killer who used his art to work through psychological trauma and that his murderous spirit is brought to life every time a character tries to use art for personal gain. So we watch uh, a series of unredeemable critic er, characters, like a critic named Morph Vandewalt, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, <laughs> um, rival dealers, 
Rodera Hayes and John Dondon, my favorite name. Oh, John Dondon. Um, you know, Gretchen, uh, who's played by Tony Collette, uh, they, they all uh, suffer for their vanities and greed. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, when that suffering occurs, no one really cares. <laughs> Not at all. They're almost all unlikable, completely unlikable. Right. So, I mean, you had said, I think one of the things that, like, this is a terrible movie, yeah. right? So why are we talking about it? Like, what, is there any point in unpacking this? Yeah, well, I mean, there's so few representations of the art world and sort of mainstream cinema that I think that's one of the reasons why I was excited to see how are we perceived by a filmmaker like, is it Dan Gilroy? Yes. You know, who made the movie Nightcrawler. Dylan Hall's character in that film plays like a kind of ambulance chaser who's trying to get his videos onto the nightly news and ends up sort of causing the accidents um, to, to sort of boost his ratings and make money. Um, and so I was curious what, how like Gilroy perceives the art world and that, um, I think is, is, is really why I wanted to watch it. And I think why we're all talking about it is our own kind of art world vanity. Like how are we seen by, exactly. the, by others? Right. Uh, and it, it's obviously not a, uh, favorable, uh, impression, um, <laughs> of the art world. <laughs> well, it is a satire, right? Well, so it is. A, I mean, unfortunately, of... it's kind of hard to satirize the art world because it is a kind of self-satirizing thing to some degree. I mean, what we take to be sort of usual operating procedure, um, lavish parties, very high prices, kind of, you know, some pretentious art speak. Um, it's hard to make fun of that because it's already kind of making fun of itself to some degree. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. You know, to like, how do you make something that sounds ludicrous sound even more ludicrous? And you I mean, it's like... the word ensconcelled. Yeah, ensorcelled. Ensorcelled. Yes. yes. Excuse me. I can't even say that word. Right. I am ensorcelled. It, it's probably one of the best lines in the film. Um, you know, so I, I do think it's, it's, there's a lot of curiosity within the art world. And, and I should say the screening was, as soon as I saw that the movie was coming out on Netflix, um, I was like, we should have a private screening of this. And I won't say names, but a bunch of people immediately DM'd me saying, I'm there, do this. I want to see this, you know? So there was a kind of lot of excitement, um, from within the industry, I say, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the, I think the thing that's interesting, I mean, it's not a roast, right? Like, um, because um, it would, like the portrayal, I think, of some of the characters would have to be more accurate for for that to really happen. But there's a real kind of uh, sort of asymmetrical treatment of characters, some of which are completely implausible, like the critic the all-powerful critic who, like, walks into Art Basel while the collectors are having problems getting in, which is just like, <laughs> what world is this? Yeah, it reverses <laughs> the usual relationship, you know, like the press pass line is now the VIP line. I know. I mean, the pre normally we're, we're used to being once one step above a peon. Well, yeah, but and to, like... to, to, to just give some idea of how outsized the influence of the critic is, an, an artist dies off screen in the film after getting a bad review. And he kills himself. Kills himself, right, basically. Yeah. Which um, doesn't seem true. <laughs> no. 
Um, yeah. And so, so on the one hand you have, um, you know, a movie that cares about movie conventions. I mean, I think you can kind of explain the rationale for treating the critic as, um, so implausibly, um, through the need, the sort of movie making need for a critic to act as a villain or, um, a, unlikable person. I don't think that <clears throat> I can't even think of a critic in a movie that is, um, shone in, uh, under a favorable light. Like that's just not their role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, by contrast, we see Rene Russo's character, Rodera, Rodera Hayes. She's a She's like the big dealer in town. And it's Hayes Gallery, right? H-A-Z-E, yes, Hayes Gallery. Which is generally how I left the movie feeling like in a haze. <laughs> <laughs> and and but her portrayal I thought was very accurate, almost uncannily. You well, know? yeah, as soon as I saw the movie, uh, her character has a, a, a tattoo of a, a punk band she was in called Velvet Buzzsaw on her like back right shoulder. And as soon as the movie started and she's talking about her like background, I'm like, that's Prishka Yuska, who used to have a gallery in Chelsea, who literally was like a squatter in Berlin, ended up marrying a very wealthy guy who, you know, I think faced some criminal charges around uh, fraudulent dealing or something at some point. Well, she did not. I don't uh, know about the rich man she married, but she well, was for her gallery. She was sued. Yeah. Yeah. And her gallery closed in 2011. Mm-hmm. But that narrative arc of starting out as sort of like a punk and then shifting into the kind of high-priced, powerful world of the art world, you know, uh, rang very true with Rene Russo's character. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it goes beyond just a, you know, a comparison, a biographical comparison. Like her behavior seems... Um, in line with what actual Chelsea sharks might do, you know? <laughs> so in the movie, she gives collectors access to desirable works um, by extracting purchases of new talent that she's trying to cultivate, mm-hmm. which is something that dealers, I think they do, right? Or maybe yeah, at a well, certain no, level. There was, this is, you know, uh, this might be part myth. Uh, part hearsay, but there was, you know, we're going to talk about the Dana Schutz show a little bit later, but there was this kind of rumor circulating that if you wanted to buy a Dana Schutz painting back in like 2004, 2005 from Zach Foyer, you had to buy one for yourself and one for a museum. Right. Well, and that actually is kind of uh, common amongst, uh, especially amongst edition work, right? You know, if you're on a board member, if you're a board member or something, you buy one for yourself and one mm-hmm. for the museum. Um, so, um, but you know, she also does things like she steals artists from emerging galleries by promising more sales and like, she's able to del- deliver on those things, but you know, and none of these things are like nice things, but she also like, uh, Pierre, is that his name? Pierre, Pierre, um, the John Malkovich character. Oh, that, yeah. So this character is a artist in her stable who hasn't produced anything for like a year straight. He's got one painting. It's terrible. Well, and he's moved his studio to LA. And we should also just point out that the movie is not set in New York. It is set in LA, which is sort of, um, 
an interesting proposition that, you know, like this, the, the center of the art world in the United States has shifted to LA. And this is where Malkovich's character has gone to kind of move his studio. Right. And the one like little anecdote is that he has basketballs in the studio and is shooting them into a hoop. And it's led people to think, is this character modeled on Jeff Koons? Which of course, no. No. Like There's Jeff- not one assistant in the studio. So that's already wrong. <laughs> Beyond that, like, the whole problem that uh, Pierre suffers from is, like, self-doubt. He sees too much good art, and he feels crippled by his own Yeah, and we know Jeff Koons would never have that moment of self-doubt. No, he's not introspective like that. Uh, I mean, so, um, but anyway, so he's suffered from this creative block, and she doesn't stroke his ego. She's the only one who's not like, oh, that's genius. She's like, you know, why don't you take off? Get, separate yourself from the art world. Spend some time at my beach house until you can find your voice. Yeah, that actually sounded like good advice. Whereas when John Dondon, the other dealer who's sort of angling to represent this artist or is, I don't know if he's agreed to represent him. He comes to the studio expecting to see all this new work and he's like, where's it hidden? And Malkovich's character is just silent. And then Don Don goes, Oh, right. And is just looking just at dating. Yeah, something off, <laughs> off screen. And I would say, uh, you know, and I, as I was watching the movie, I was like, John Don Don, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say David Kordansky would be, <laughs> I I don't know that there's a one-to-one relationship like that because, I mean, uh, the accent was like South African, right? So I don't... Is David Kordansky South African? No, no. It's just the the kind of young, dashing guy who represents some big names as the up-and-comer in L.A. You know, Kordansky represents Rashid Johnson. And, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil Don Don's ending. Maybe we should, but he's... (laughs) hung in a recreation of a kind of farmhouse that had some serious racial overtones with like lynching that was really strange. And I don't think anyone, I didn't discuss it with anyone after the movie. I just sort of let that one go. Oh, I didn't even think of that. uh, You know, God, now I can't remember the name of this artist, uh, Jason Rhodes. Yeah. That's what I thought of when I saw that, like him hanging it was a little too um rustic like it was like a kind of old diorama of an old house that he kind of walks into and it gets trapped oh i forgot about that entirely and and we should mention that like all these people die in some way by the hand or the mechanism of the way they profit or sort of exploit uh art and so that that one kind of Seemed like it might be worth unpacking a little bit at a later date, <laughs> but um, it's it's well, one but of that. I think that's not entirely true. Like the last death, um, the last death in the movie. I don't think um, is that Renee's character. Well, I guess we're just introducing spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can come back and add a spoiler alert in yeah, post production. I guess so. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so if we're just saying there's spoilers, yeah, Renee's character, she's killed by the, the buzzsaw on the... Yeah, but that's... But that's the, I would argue that was her. She's exploiting, she dies because she's exploiting, like, the, the real motivations for making art, like that punk ethos, you know, um, 
she's she's sort of betrayed her roots in a way and that thing that she that where she where she started from and where her passion was is what kills her at the end oh that's good i didn't think of that oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) i have thought a little bit about the movie i just unlike you i have not written anything down in any formal manner (laughs) Well, so anyway, so that's uh, The Velvet Buzzsaw. Do we ultimately recommend that people see this? Um, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I, and I, I say this on two counts. One, um, if you're in the art world, it, it may be, you may find some momentary fun or a few laughs at the kind of absurdity of the language. Um, some of the representations of the art world will ring true. But I'm also a serious horror film fan. And, uh, you know, I've been a kind of uh, student of the genre for a long time, and it fails miserably just as a horror film. You know, we've talked about it, like you said, it had Beetlejuice levels of gore. There is really only one sort of shocking moment, you know, involving Tony Collette's art advisor character. The rest of the deaths are all really pedestrian, sort of kind of going with the, 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 default mechanism of sometimes thinking if you don't show the scary thing, it's more scary. In this case, it just looks like they ran out of money or, uh, you know, they don't live up to the kind of possibilities of, of the, the propositions for these kind of like violent, bloody deaths. So it's just not a very good horror film. Yeah. I mean, I think also, um, typically when you see a horror film, film, like people get murdered, um, um, sort of based on the severity of their uh, misdeeds. So, I mean, and this is terrible, but usually, you know, the slut dies before the virgin, like that sort of thing. This is like totally random. (laughs) 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 Like why one person dies more than another. I I felt like there were some moments where uh, the, the aspiring dealer, the way she dies, you see her standing outside of a, uh, it's just in a kind of parking lot and there's some street art and then it just shifts subtly into a gallery space. And then the street art melts off the painting now into the gallery space and kills the young dealer. And so she's dying because she has taken street art out of its sort of original space, put it in the gallery, commodified it, and she dies for that sin. But it's a really disappointing kind of like clumsy climax, but it feels like it comes at the end of the movie, like it's supposed to be the big, you know, uh, the big scene. And it just sort of drops. It's not the big scene. That's... (laughs) That's just, that's just it. It's not the big scene. Well, there I mean, there, really like, there is a rationale for, for like, um, how people die. Like, that. Um, that's definitely the case. But, like, the severity of the crimes, like, that sort of thing, I think, like, well, that's doesn't I think, seem... That's where I think it's the unevenness of the filmmaking. You know, like, Tony Collette's character gets her arm ripped off. And yes. blood sprays about, and it oh, follows yeah, and it up she... with the next day, which is one of the funniest things where people think it's just an art installation. Until yeah, and the somebody... kids are, like, playing yeah. in the pools totally. of blood. <laughs> where, where everyone else just sort of dies, and that's it. You know, like Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Morph, you know, sort of chased down by a killer Jordan Wolfson knockoff. And we, we see maybe he gets his head snapped or his neck snapped or something, but that's it. You know, like, it's just, like, a really quick moment, and then we're on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of too bad because I thought that that scene I thought started 
kind of nicely yeah. with the, him being trapped by the various crutches yes. that the, the robot had. But then the actual death was just like, I mean, it's like they couldn't find somebody who could come up with something interesting to do. Right. And and if we, you know, maybe this is the a good note to end on, but if there were um, a final girl in the movie, you know, the the in, in slasher movies, it's the young woman who... Uh, survives, you know, usually like the slasher. Um, and in this case, it is the sort of underpaid gallerina character who uh, Rene Russo's character calls Rococo, and her name's Coco. Coco. <laughs> and we realize that, you know, she sort of lives because she has not profited <laughs> in any way off and the she's labor. she's like forced out of the yeah. city. Yeah, she's forced general. out of the city yeah. and she has to head back to the Midwest. And so she sort of serves as uh, maybe the, the final girl for the film. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm going to issue one point of dissent. I I think I disagree. I think it's worth seeing um in a group. Yes. If you have yourself a postmasters and 20 people who you can see this this movie with, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, and I I should thank uh Magda and Tomash at Postmasters for hosting us. Uh, Jen and Paul for making excellent barbecue for everyone and Michelle Vaughn for making a drink called Pants on Fire and she also made uh, a Bloody Mary Boone cocktail. Which interestingly is a good segment into our next bit of news (laughs) which is Mary Boone. So uh, what's going on with Mary Boone? Um, I I think sort of to begin with, at the beginning of the year in January, a lot of uh, new information came out uh, about Mary Boone because she was involved in a tax fraud case. She pled guilty Mm -hmm. uh, to the charges of falsifying tax documents to the tune of $3 million over the course of three years, 2009, 2010, and 2011. Um, when she pled guilty, prosecutors uh, suggested that she should get up to, uh, I believe, three years in prison. Mm-hmm. And um, Boone's defense was uh, sort of complicated, but like to boil it all down, it was um, abuse, childhood abuse, um, and psychological trauma that result uh, as a result, and also like. 5 million people who came out of the woodwork to um, write letters of support for for her. So she had Ai Weiwei write her a letter of support. That's the equivalent of the art world's Pope or something. (laughs) You know, she had uh, um, a bunch of her employees write her notes um, about how they were able to take time off when they were sick or their family members were sick and she never complained and paid them well. Um, She had uh, um, a letter from Jerry Saltz uh, supporting her. So, um, So that sort of supported her case. Anyway, after all this came out, there was a lively debate online as to whether she should go to jail. And what what sparked that debate? Because I know, was it something that you tweeted or was it something that Jerry said? Well, 
I would imagine the debate would go on whether or not I said something about it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in my world, what happened is I saw the Times headline saying that she had uh, she had cited uh, psychological trauma as um, a reason for her not to get jail time. And I said that I was not particularly sympathetic to the charge and three years seemed more than generous to me. Mm-hmm. At which point... Jerry Saltz took issue with that and said, well, you know, why are we so punitive in the art world? Uh, I don't believe she needs jail time. But the way that he wrote it was sort of as if I was a one of those like rabid um, Trump supporters. So there was a lot of, you know, lock her up, sad mm language in the tweet so we sort of divisive in that way and i think that's why a lot of people responded to that um because i didn't feel particularly um and still don't feel particularly uh sympathetic towards her although i don't i don't like jail as a solution say that. Right. And I, well, it, it's a little bit of a head scratcher because Jerry is a very fierce critic of Donald Trump. And one of the main things that people have been calling for since the primaries and before were for him to release his tax returns. And if we could hang him out to dry on tax evasion and he went to jail for a very long time, no one would bat an eye. There'd probably be parties in the streets. Now that it's Mary Boone, my sense is that she's part of what Jerry would call our tribe. And right. that because she's part of the tribe, we must be sympathetic. And that it's a sort of nod and wink to the kind of gray market that the art world kind of occupies, a lot of cash deals. Um, I think at the lower end, on like artists' side, it's such a, a tough business to be in. And there's often so little money that changes hands that people do whatever they can to, you know, minimize their tax burdens. Um But, you know, I just think that it's really curious that, like, Jerry comes out with this kind of, like, defense of Mary Boone and and then maybe make some claim, like, lock her up or something. He he said that he thought what she was doing was badass. And that I take issue Uh. with. But, you know, after all this debate uh, took place, because there was a lot of sort of Twitter exchanges, and I, I think, by and large, people were not overly sympathetic towards Mary Boone and um, I think did not really think that uh, did not really agree with Jerry on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who were more sympathetic sometimes uh, I found were other art dealers. Mm-hmm. So Ed Winkleman felt more sympathetic towards her than, um, than I did, for example. Um, but I kind of thought that maybe what was happening was that people, including myself, didn't really understand the full nature of the crime and what falsifying tax documents meant Mm -hmm. and, you know, how bad was what she's doing anyway. Because a lot of the conversation was like, well, we'd have to put every art dealer Uh. in in jail (laughs) if, you know... So Which she's is being made not true. Yeah, she's being made true. an example of. The other argument I heard well, was that this was like a Martha Stewart case, right? Mm-hmm. So there she's being targeted because she's a woman and there's misogyny and blah blah but, blah. So you spoke with a lawyer, right? Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, and what did you find out? Because it seems like... Kind of a bunch of interesting things. I mean, (laughs) uh, first of all, he thinks she's definitely going to jail. Mm -hmm. Um, So he said 24 to 30 months, and he said that she's fortunate at that. Um, And, I mean, to use his exact words, like, he's... He said, uh, this is Richard Champion, what she got is nothing short of a miracle. (laughs) Okay? So the miracle, uh, really you understand what he's talking about once you start to understand the nature of the crime. So it's not just that she, um, when we talk about falsifying tax documents, it's not just that she um, categorized a few too many lunches um, as a business expense, she did things like she transferred $9.5 million from one business account to another, reported the account, uh, the account transfers as tax deductible business ex- expenses by falsifying ta- uh, check registers to the accountant while withholding the bank records. Okay. So like, that's yeah. not, a little thing. I mean, she also, you know, she's described her $900,000 remodeling of her apartment as uh, a artist commission. <laughs> um, she uh, included $300,000 in like personal credit card charges to, um, you know, as a business expense. Those included beauty salon charges, luxury designer companies, purchases from like Hermes and Louis Vuitton, um, and like $15,000 from a jewelry uh, company. And just so that we're all clear, because I think I, I had definitely wished for this kind of tax deduction, but like the only time you can deduct clothing as a business expense is if you cannot wear it out in public. (laughs) So if it's a costume, if it's a nursing uniform, then you can deduct it as a business expense. Otherwise that's just your personal shit. Yeah. Um, so the, the other thing I learned is, and this is kind of interesting. Um, usually, uh, People, the IRS usually doesn't just randomly come across these things. Usually there is a tipster Mm -hmm. who tips off the IRS. And recently, I think within the last 10 years or something, there, uh, there has been instituted what's called a whistleblower law. And what that means is that the whistleblower is entitled to a percentage of the money that the government recovers if the tip was correct. And uh, according to uh, Champion, this person would get, you know, somewhere between 15 and 30% of the money. Um, So he was, he, although the government rarely honors that, so it's more like 10%. Mm -hmm. So, probably $300,000 this person would really? get if there was a tipster. And it's not like Mary Boone um, is known for being the nicest employer in the world. Despite the many letters of support from her. <laughs> this is true. I mean, I think if you live in the fine art world, like we all have a friend 
who has either worked there or knows somebody who had some terrible experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so is she liable? Does she, is she, does she have to pay back the government $3 million? Is that like the fine? No, or the she actually money? has to pay back the government $6 million. Oh, wow. So there's the $3 million that she defrauded plus mm-hmm. three additional three in charges, which she has actually paid back. So she's... So that is that helps her reduce her fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, Champion told me, and you can kind of see this too, like that the uh, prosecutors or um, the defense lawyers did a really good job on her behalf. But also he says there's a level of luck too involved with this. One, you get a prosecutor who's not super punitive because there are people who just want to throw the book at you and you don't have no control over who the government assigns. And, uh, she also has judge Alvin Hellerstein, who's a randomly assigned judge, but known to be a moderate. Mm. So, you know, she'll with the, uh, tax falsification that she has pled guilty to, um, you know, she's, she will, almost certainly get some time in jail. Hmm. So we're just waiting. And and that may be the end of the gallery. Well, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that happens just because the art world is a place where, speaking back to like Priska Yishka, like her gallery is closed, but th- there is a level of like criminality with her partner that he was able to come back into the art world after a period. You know, Healy Namid went to jail for quite some time for the gambling uh, that was taking place at his gallery. He's fully back in the art world. And, you know, it's it's not lost on me that, you know, like she could go to jail for a couple of months and like Martha Stewart reemerge, you know, more powerful than ever and uh, continue to do exactly what she does, which is dealing art, hopefully not the tax falsification side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I, I mean prosecutor uh the defense lawyers want her to just commit to like a thousand hours of community service or something like that i mean i do think that the laws are sort of structured in a way that i would imagine that mary boone will not falsify tax documents anymore um whether she defrauds people in other ways like there's no service like you go to jail, but there's not any service while you're in jail that treats people who um, are like fraud artists or, you know, I whatever the term is, who treats people who have done that. Like, and that to me is a problem. And I think that because actually my mother... Um, ran a fraud rehabilitation program in Canada. And so that was what she did with, um, for many years until the government cut that program so that it doesn't exist in Canada either. But can you, can you imagine our current federal government, um, promoting fraud reform? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, they would probably have some master instructors, uh, in fraud, Um, that they could send to the prisons right now. (laughs) This is true. All right. So, uh, I mean, moving right along, we, we've seen some art. 
What yeah. have we seen? Well, I, uh, to be honest, I've been working in the studio quite a bit, um, and I have not been out to see a whole lot of shows, but I did go out at the beginning of the season, and I saw the Dana Schutz show at Petzl. Um, I saw the Sandow Burke show at PPOW. Um, a little bit later, I saw a show by Mateo Lopez at Casey Kaplan Gallery. Um, and I think the thing that I would probably recommend to people, um, if you're in the Lower East Side, is stop by Pierogi to see uh work by Don Clements, who passed away recently. And so for the next three weeks, they have uh, quite a bit of her work in the gallery. And there will be a series of um, tributes and things sort of ongoing uh, at the gallery in Don's memory, who is uh, both a, a sort of wonderful person and a wonderful, amazing artist, which, you know, like thinking about how Terrible. What kind of work does she make again? She makes large-scale drawings that often she would do within her small Greenpoint apartment or spaces that she lived in and kind of work these things in ways where she could roll parts up, fold them, and draw from life and observation in tightly enclosed spaces and then unfurl these 70-foot-long drawings, mostly pen and ink and gouache and some watercolor. And she's had multiple shows at Pierogi, and she was in the Whitney Biennial in 2010. And, like, why... Um, I, I didn't know Don Clements. So like, what was her role in the community? Like, why was she so beloved? She was just a wonderful person. Uh, you know, about 10 people got up and spoke about Don last night. And a lot of people would start with the first thing of Don's smile. Um, her big blue eyes that seemed to take in the world. She was, uh, what people described as like a kind of proper lady who just carried herself with incredible poise and dignity. She, when you were with Dawn, you really felt like she was listening to you and that she cared about you, even if she just sort of met you for the first moment. Like her students spoke about that from RISD. That's a kind of charisma, isn't She it? had an incredible charisma and she just was incredibly intelligent and committed in that sense that she was an artist's artist. Um, and I think just so many of us admired her and her work. And, you know, she sort of moved to New York a little bit later in life to kind of really give it a go um, after having some like early success where her work was in a Venice Biennale. And it didn't immediately translate into that idea of like art stardom or something. And so Dawn just had to keep working for a long time. And I think it really paid off. Um, but just the number of people who spoke about Dawn last night made me realize that, you know, I, I, I got to spend a lot of time, in, you know, with Dawn over the 15 or 16 years that I knew her as part of the Williamsburg art community. Um, she was a visiting artist at, uh, at the program I used to work at. And my impression of her was just reaffirmed by so many people who had been lifelong friends with her. And I just felt very special to have ever known her, you know, in my life. Oh, that's really beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, it was um, a little bit of a whipsaw, like, you know, just emotionally to, to be at the Velvet Buzzsaw, which is this <laughs> cliche ridden, horrible depiction of the art world and people getting their comeuppance. And then to spend three hours with a community of people who also happen to be artists that were there to celebrate somebody who made the best kind of work uh, that when I think about what it means to be an artist, like Dawn was one of those people that just, you know, she was going to be making that work, whether there was a market, whether there was reception. And she proved that, you know, sort of uh, in her time when she was upstate living in Troy and Albany between her 
MFA and kind of moving back down to New York where she just worked and she made such an impression on people that it wasn't surprising that there were 150 people, you know, standing room only at Pierogi for three hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, apparently Dawn was an avid baker. And so people brought like hundreds and hundreds of cookies and baked goods to kind of honor that side of Dawn's memory. And it just that kind of generosity, uh, you don't encounter it so often in the art world, you know? That sounds like a tasty event. Too. It was. It was. <laughs> it was bittersweet and every level you could think of it, um, but very moving. So, I, I seriously, if you if you are unfamiliar with Dawn's work, um, stop by Pierogi, you know, and say hi to Joe and Susan and take in the work because I, there's a lot of it, and she was a tireless worker. So I, I hope to see a, you know a retrospective of her work in the coming years. Well, I hope that happens. Um, well, do we want to talk about, uh, Dana Schutz a little bit? Because this is, uh, I guess what's being billed is, well, I don't know if it's being billed as a comeback show, but it is the first show that she's had after the Whitney Bi- Biennial, um, press mess. I don't even know what well, to I call would just call it. It was a, it was a, it was a controversy. I mean, yes, there were disagreements over her, her painting, um, in that show and, you know, it sparked a lot of conversation about how artists, are they able to use other people's experiences or identity in their own work? Right. Um, And I think the question of who owns culture, um, mm -hmm. and came up quite a bit during that time. Well, and speaking of sort of likable people, I mean, Dana has always had a kind of reputation as being an open, accessible person. She was very nice. And I think when that controversy erupted, there were a lot of people who were like, but she's such a nice woman. Like, why are we so mad at Dana Schutz? She's so great. And, you know, she, I hadn't, you know, I mean, the controversy followed her work a little bit to like a, a big show she had, I think in Boston after that, but then oh, it yeah, sort of right. quieted down and, uh, you know, now she's sort of back at Petzl with a solo exhibition that I, I think I've read something very briefly that was like, this is a, you know, the, the show is very gritty and sort of grounded in, in reality or something, or I, I didn't read that it confronts the controversy, but. Um, I, I definitely felt like the work was a return to her kind of earlier painting style, definitely heavier on the paint, um, sort of more gritty. Um, and I, you know, I don't have particularly strong feelings about the show itself. I know that you maybe liked it more than I did. Oh yeah. I mean, I loved her paintings. I thought they were like, I thought the paintings were just beautifully executed. Um, and I think the return to that earlier work, at least for me is a welcome one because I, I really respond to that, um, style, but also way of thinking. There's a kind of, um, just weird creative spirit to all of it that like all the paintings have, um, kind of compositions and scenarios that I, wouldn't imagine myself, you know, there's a, an image, I think it's called presenter. And it's this person who is holding a slide clicker with her underwear around her ankles. And like, there is a, a disembodied hand that is coming towards her, her face and is pulling out her lip. So she can't talk. And, and I kind of like that because it's hilarious and but also something that 
most of us can relate to, you know, this kind of fear of, you know, uh, speaking in public or being in public presenting. Yeah, and it's got to be hard for her considering that the Whitney controversy and sort of how do you respond to that as an artist and whether that painting is about that kind of fear of having to step back into public and present yourself yeah. with that kind of vulnerability. I totally get, I mean, for me, when I went into the show, um, we're going to ignore the bronzes for a minute because those feel like a sort of lead weight that just sinks part of the show. <laughs> and you probably I just shouldn't don't even think of with. them as part of the show. They're uh, in a different room. They're they, a different thing. They're for different people. They're, they are, they're like museum, um, pieces, just like these will go in an institu- institution and, uh, that's what their purpose is. But there was, there was a painting in the back corner of the show. I don't have the title. Um, and it's, 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 it looks like a kind of tribe of hipsters. They're tattooed. They're kind of crazy. And they're all on one side of the canvas packed together like a tribe with maybe things that you could hit people with. And they're looking off to the right. You don't see what they're looking at, but it's sort of sunset. And, you know, speaking of that kind of like Jerry Salt's, like Mary Boone's a bit badass or like the artist is badass or that we're, we're all sort of um, engaged in a kind of fight all the time. I don't know. I, I, I got a little sense that there, there were some, there was some kind of commentary within Dana's paintings about the situation at the Whitney, about being an artist in a kind of tribal, maybe even defensive position. Um, and it didn't strike me as particularly humorous, but I, I, it was the painting that I, I most responded to in the show that maybe felt like some kind of key to understanding the thinking that was going on around it. And I couldn't unsee, uh, I couldn't like look at that show without thinking about the Whitney controversy. Yeah, I and think the that's painting true. Of Emmett Till's corpse. That you know? that, um, that painting is called "Beat Out the Sun," um, which somehow I I think that title, um, I guess, makes sense in the context of all the other stuff that that you're saying. Like, um, I mean, just a, even just a rendering of that painting is really it's just really well done. Like the sun is this like three dimensional thing that actually looks like something you could beat up. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, there's kind of a pointlessness to it. Right. Like, um, and I think wherever you are on the controversy that happened vis-a-vis the Whitney, I do think that we have all sort of experienced, um, bickering online that does seem pointless Mm. and that doesn't seem to get anywhere. And I think the thing with the Dana Schutz controversy before, which was the Emmett Till rendering Mm. that many people found offensive is that I don't, it's not a solvable problem. Um, Or it's such a big problem that I think we'll talk a little bit later about um, decolonize this place and the Whitney Biennial, not that, well, that's par- becoming part of the kind of controversy around Warren Candors. But when we're talking about such sort of historic problems, whether it's dealing with race or the history of slavery or um, whose land is like the Whitney Museum on, you know, uh, these, these problems tend to get so large that they do feel like unsolvable. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly not with a painting. <laughs> I know. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, 
I was definitely not in the uh, let's destroy this painting camp. Um, no. And I don't think Dana, sh- like, I I think Marilyn Minter at one point said, like, look, Dana Schutz is not the enemy. Like, there are actual Ku Klux Klan members out there. Well, and I, I would point that, you know, Warren Canders is far more of an enemy to people and their physical safety and emotional safety than Dana's painting ever is. And he is, you know, the vice chairman of the board of trustees of the Whitney. Exactly. Um, But at the same time, I, you know, I do not negate uh, or dismiss the very real pain that some people felt as a Mm -hmm. result of that painting. Um, And, you know, you have to acknowledge that, too. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, I would never have also thought or suggested that Dana Schutz shouldn't be painting, you know, or that like cancel Dana Schutz or something, you know, like yeah. the Hodorowsky exhibit that's being canceled up at the, um, not, is it the Bronx? Was it supposed to be at the Bronx museum? Did you hear about this? Uh, mm, which he's a South American filmmaker, Hodorowsky. Uh-huh. Um, his show was slated to open soon, but it was canceled after it came out that in the early seventies, when he released this film Topo or mm-hmm. El Topo, he claimed to have raped his co-star in the film. And now, much later, he was saying that was hype, it was marketing, it was, you know, about the film in the sort of character of this, the, the role he was playing. But irregardless, you know, the, the, the insinuation that there was, uh, even, even if it was consensual sex between this, you know, man and his young female co-star, that that was just totally wildly inappropriate. And if it was rape, you know, a, a crime. So... The show has been canceled, and you know it's another sort of Me Too moment. And he's spoken out, of, uh, you know, against it. But like, that's that's you know, I mean, that's one way to solve these controversies: just cancel the show and get rid of the artist, and try not to present them publicly within an institution. And I don't think Dana's painting rises to that level, but it certainly felt like it in the context oh, of that, that controversy. Time, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like free speech was at stake. You know, um, uh, uh, an artist's right to express any other experience uh, an experience any other than their own, like biographical lived experience, um, seemed to be at stake. You know, so I, you know, it's a lot of sort of things swirling around Dana's show. So I just, I, I preface that because it's a lot of kind of pressure to kind of step back into. Well, and also, I mean, I think this sort of um, goes to something that uh, I had noticed when I was in Chelsea recently, which is just sort of that um, it seems to be more woke somehow than um, normal, by which I mean um there are more African American uh, artists on view than I normally see. Yeah, and that that seems to have been true for maybe the last year and a half. Yeah, that's what um, I. Yeah, it's not just. Uh, you're absolutely January. right. I mean, I, I the Sandow Burke show at PPOW is intensely. I mean, paintings about. Uh, Trump and and all the kind of like terrible events and uh, shootings and just awful things that have been happening and then a whole series of works like just graphite on pencil or graphite on paper drawings of like Trump and just like grotesqueries and it was a really tough show to kind of go through but that idea of like political wokeness 
of, of shows that are intensely political. I mean, there's the Martha Rossler show at the Jewish Museum right now. And then just the, the number of artists that have been um, shown, whether they're people of color or the work has overt political context, definitely seems to be on the rise. Right. Which, I mean, I generally see to be, um, you know, a good thing, but... I, you know, I, I just like, this is such a weird thing, but like, I'm like, I think it's also not a bad thing to be critical of, um, Chelsea's, the motivations of galleries. The velvet buzzsaw spins in the background, right? Like how much of this... (laughs) Is taking advantage of of a a kind of moment where there's an expectation of certain kinds of work being shown and that the galleries will continue to profit off those artists, that they will still continue to kind of build careers and keep the star system afloat, you know, and kind of keep things going. And I do think there's an interesting intersection between all of this is that, you know, as part of the controversy, the current controversy at the Whitney, which seems to be always involved in some level of controversy, um, is Wage put out an invitation to artists uh, who have already been selected for the Whitney Biennial, but we don't know that because the list isn't out. And they've also, I just learned this, that when you're invited to be in the Whitney Biennial, you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. um, and, And you can't say you're in it or not until the list is made public. Okay, that makes sense. And and it puts a sort of wage is sort of done a, a double demand of these artists. One is to first kind of sign up for their wagency program, which is a, a negotiating tool that artists can use with nonprofits to be paid a fee. And so in this case, I think it's like a $1,500 fee for participating in a group show. The second demand is that the artists withhold their content from the show until the Whitney addresses the staff's concerns about Warren Candor's uh, being on the board of the museum. And, you know, it's, it's, it's another way of sort of thinking about how does the art system, how does the art market, how do art museums sort of in tandem um, exploit or exacerbate, you know, sort of existing social problems or serve to kind of what Ben Davis calls the, the old pressure release valve. Like if you can go to Chelsea and say it feels more woke, then, hey, things are getting better. But we know that many of the problems uh, that are still affecting society have not changed. But maybe it looks uh, like it's happening in the gallery world. And, you know, there's a net positive there of like more people of color, more women um, artists that, you know, art that's explicitly political is being shown, I think is a good thing. But then you know, if, if we still are embroiled in all these sort of controversies and we know these other problems are going on, is it really, you know, um, are we just kind of maintaining the current system as it is? I don't know. This whole situation just suddenly made me so sad. Like the first thing I thought was just like, oh, this is why democracy fails, which, which is to say that, um, you know, what Wage is talking about requires of the bulk of artists to do mm-hmm. this. And for artists, and the reason it works is because, or it, it would work is because um, there's a stake in it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, the museum 
needs this work. But there's also is like the artists have to put a lot on the line, more so than I think um, many would feel comfortable doing. So the only way that change really gets made is when you're pushed to a point, uh, a tipping point where things are really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I feel like that's kind of where we are now, right? We're at this tipping point where, um, there's tons of terrible people, um, there's tons of terrible people. There's also structures of governance that we disagree with. And, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but the Amazon, the, the whole process by which Amazon is coming to New York City uh, is a failure of democracy. You oh, know, it's absolutely. incredibly top yeah. down. And it does sort of mirror some of the, the issues at the Whitney and their system of governments and in general museum governance in the United States um, is deeply problematic. And, you know, in, in the case of the Whitney and wages request, it is putting the pressure on the artists to be the ones to withhold something and jeopardize the existence of the show. And that puts their own professional careers at stake. Um, you know, there's a lot for them to lose um, because it is such a, you know, sort of influential and important show. And on the other side of things, like when we can say we go to Chelsea and it seems more woke, we're celebrating you know, individual artists who've gotten a slice of the pie are getting more representation. And as like a white male artist, I can never tell another artist of color or somebody who's been, you know, marginalized that it's a bad thing that they're uh, uh, getting a huge show at like a major Chelsea gallery. So, you know, I have to kind of like quietly applaud that and then also still think about the ways in which are the systems that we operate in are still deeply flawed and um, reflect and mirror like uh, what we consider to be like our democratic society. And they're not, they're not, they're not reconcilable or very easy to like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> deal with, you know, like I definitely want to, you know, support and applaud artists who are getting uh, that sort of moment in the spotlight and getting prices, you know, selling work for lots of money. But I know that that continues to keep the system going. You know, I know that's also true. And that's the harder part where the celebration is muted, I would say, you know, I can't be like completely thrilled that, you know, the art world continues to sort of operate as usual in many ways. Right. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, uh, Canders, what's his first name? I don't know. His name is Warren B. Canders. Warren B. Canders. So he is the chairman of the Whitney board. He's right? one of the one of the um, vice chairmen. There's like vice. five vice chair, and okay. the Whitney board is about fifty two people. In total. Right. And so, why is Canders like? What is his business, and why is it contentious? Why are people taking issue with it? Well, uh, we can tell the viewers that sitting behind me is uh, about a 50-inch drawing <laughs> that uh, lays out some of these relationships. And Candor's, um owns a company called Candor's & Company. It's a, a principal investment firm where they buy up public and private companies as the majority you know, ownership. And uh, a couple of years, well, Back in like the 90s, he uh, started a company called Armor Holdings that was like defense military contracts. And in uh, like 2007, he sold it to BAE Systems, which is like Great Britain's largest arms manufacturer for I think 
he sold it for $4.1 billion, and he was the chairman of the corporation that owned Armour Holdings. And then uh, in 2012, he created the Maui Acquisition Corp., which uh, is a private acquisition vehicle, I didn't know that was a term, that uh, bought back Safari Land, which was a brand that was owned by Armour Holdings. And it's now sort of morphed into the Safari Land group. It has somewhere from like 17 to 22 brands that produce body armor, uh, tactical armor for vehicles, uh, bomb detecting equipment, handcuffs, gun holsters, um, outdoor survival gear, um, they do a lot for forensic analysis and law investigation. But the one company they own, uh, this brand called Defense Technology, produces tear gas. And it is tear gas that has been used uh, against Palestinian refugees in Gaza. Um, it's been used against Black Lives Matter activists in Ferguson. It's been used uh, against the water protectors in Standing Rock. Is it ever used for positive ends? No. Well, I mean... <laughs> Crowd control and riot control. And generally, when we see protests and problems in the United States, it seems to be tied to ideological struggles rather than like a mob of, of criminals. You know, the, uh, like I don't I can't think of a moment when I've seen tear gas deployed like at the Tijuana border that against families and asylum seekers um, that it's really being used for anything good in any sense that I could imagine this like industry that he's involved in being um, really helpful or beneficial. Um, just currently in the way in which I think earlier you said, you know, you like, you don't necessarily see prison being a good solution to most of our problems. You know, when we probably need treatment and supports and lots of things that are not. So you don't think that bulletproof vests and tear gas are a good solution to our problems? No, but it, and, and, and I would say it's his primary industry. This is what he earns his money off of. And right. Now, the Whitney's position, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but as I recall, it was something like, well, or the Whitney president, the president of the Whitney was, was like, well, we don't have it. Candor's doesn't necessarily have any control over what their products are used for. So why are they being held responsible for tear gas being used on children? That is, is the Whitney's position. Yeah. It's also their position that they can't solve all the problems in the world. And, you know, when I went... How fair to, is that? I don't... This is... This is the... And the reason why I'm sort of engaged in this work and thinking about this stuff is that, you know... The, the relationship that Candor's has to the actual deployment of the tear gas on these sort of vulnerable, oppressed groups is that it runs through a chain of like ownership. There's a kind of distance to it, an abstraction. But in this case, I mean, with the, the situation um, at the Whitney is that the staff members who work there, they're friends and family, people who look like them, people that come from the same places they come from, are the ones being affected you know, by the use of this tear gas. And they feel unsafe, physically, emotionally unsafe with candors on the board. And in this case, it does, there is, you know, like I could draw a bright red line from defense technology to candors. And I don't think he escapes culpability that he's just the producer of these things, you know. Um, it's He's not a gun manufacturer necessarily, but, it, you know, it... it, it if he's asking to be sort of absolved of his, you know, uh, role in this just by saying, I don't make the decisions, I don't pull the trigger, I just make the weapon, is total bullshit uh, in my mind. And it's, it's 
this instance is sort of given a clear, in some ways, moral line for the protesters that decolonize this place and others to really point to a moment where the, the, the kind of business as usual, lots of very wealthy people running our cultural institutions with, we have some vague awareness of how they make their money. In this case, it's very clear. And uh, that's what I think decolonize this place is organizing around candors in this situation, not just to call attention to his profit-making industry. Like in the Velvet Buzzsaw, this dude should be dead. You know, <laughs> like tear gas canister shot into his head and it blows up, you know, and it would be great. Uh, that's not going to happen. So, you know, decolonize this place is trying to use this as an example of um, the, the kind of problems with our institutional governance that they want to see changed. And I think um, if, if we're interested in thinking about how democracy might function better in this country, um, the museum board is one example that could use some structural reform. And I should preface all of this by saying that I went to the, the town hall a couple of weeks ago that um, decolonized this place held at Cooper Union. It was well attended, you know, over 150 people. I saw some notable art critics. Uh, I saw a lot of artists uh, whose names we would recognize. Um, in present for uh, a presentation about the situation, and we broke out into working groups, or about five or six working groups that are thinking about all the different ways to address this situation. And it's vis-a-vis -vis candors, because it's the most visible thing that we can articulate to the public about what the problems are right now. And that it's not just about the Whitney, but he's going to be the example. And as, as the, the Whitney Biennial approaches, this is where sort of Wage got involved with their invitation to withhold art from it. Um, but there's people that are, you know, there's a definite interest, and I can sort of safely say that there will be a kind of escalation of actions and protests leading up to the Whitney Biennial and possibly after um, particularly any artists whose work is political that might be showing at the Whitney um, after the Whitney Biennial. Um, and, yeah, there's there's a lot. So, so, I mean, not that you asked for my opinion, but <laughs> <laughs> here we are and explain me, so you got it. Yeah. Um, so my thoughts are I, a couple of things. Like, I think that you could probably make a Pollyanna type uh, paint a Pollyanna type picture of candors um, not necessarily knowing who or how these things get used and the government when acting in the interest of the people needs these um, things like tear gas and whatever for thing legitimate situations that might come up Okay, let's just assume that there are occasionally legitimate situations mm -hmm. that come up. I think that part of um, the research that nobody can see because this is a podcast, <laughs> and so I am the only one looking at the diagram that you have. Um, the thing that is alarming to me, other than the knowledge that actually tear gas gets used on children, um, and that's not okay, is that even, like, you could, I guess I might, I, 
I don't know. There's I there is an excuse from a good person that maybe I would buy, but like that's not the people that he is being surrounded by. On your diagram, there's a picture of Anthony Scaramucci. Yes. And people may know him as the Mooch, who was briefly President Trump's uh, press secretary for like 10 days before right. he went nuts on the air and uh, was fired. Essentially. Yes, I think he, um, yeah, I, he, I mean, he verbally threatened a reporter at the New Yorker. Yeah. And it's, it's a one step uh, move to get to Candor's because Scaramucci is uh, on the Federal Enforcement Foundation, which is something that was set up sort of after 9-11 to bring together business executives and senior federal law enforcement officials with the idea that they're going to support our troops and the, you know, people involved in federal law enforcement. But it's impossible to uncouple that, even maybe anything altruistic about that, uh, from the fact that Candor's runs a company that sells these things and to imagine that he's not aware of how and where and why they're being used seems insane, especially if he's... Well, especially because, I mean, he's got to sell them. I mean, yeah. like, he's got to sell he's them. He's got to understand him. what they're being used for yeah. and because if he's, he's going to develop more, Absolutely. I would and if he meets regularly with senior law, you know, federal law enforcement officials, he must understand how and where they're going to be deployed. And, you know, at least through the kind of conversations you have in these networks. And... That, you know, it's part of the thing is, yes, let's say that there are legitimate purposes for these products to exist in the world. Um, like, I can't, I, I don't think I'm upset that he owns a, a brand called Mustang Survival that makes outdoor gear. Like, I can imagine a hunter buying a yeah, jacket. Yeah, sure, that's fine. fine. But it also doesn't mean he needs to sit on the board of the Whitney, you know? Like, if you want to continue that business and make profit off that, knowing full well what our federal government is like and has been like for the last three years and has never been perfect under Obama or Clinton or the Bush people, um, you know, he doesn't have to be on the board of the Whitney. Right. Well, you don't get to wash your sins away with an art donation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which also, in some ways, just seems like the bare minimum that anybody could, you know, do to give back. Well, it's like, just so funny when you were talking about Mary Boone and that part of her defense was enlisting very good people or working class people to testify to her good nature, to her generosity, Yeah, is the exact same mechanism that capitalists and, and war profiteers like Candor's will use to say, hey, I might make this terrible thing or I did this terrible thing. But I give money to culture, I support foundations, and that therefore it should wash away the kind of sins of, of, of police shooting tear gas canisters at like into the water that people are trying to protect in Standing Rock or, you know, throwing tear gas at Black Lives Matter protesters in Ferguson, which I think it's under the Geneva Convention. You can't use tear gas in warfare. And yet we'll still use it at our borders and in our cities, which is insane. That is insane. Oddly enough, <laughs> all of this uh, talk about uh, art washing um, has uh, brings up Amazon. Um, are we are we finished with? Uh... Yeah, I yeah, I mean that's pretty much all I wanted to say about uh, decolonize this place in that town hall. Um, but I don't think we're still done with bad nefarious corporate 
governance or... Oh, we aren't? <laughs> Did we want to talk a little bit about Amazon? Oh, yeah, we definitely want to talk about Amazon. Um, so uh, last time we, uh, I guess we briefly discussed Amazon and... Um, I think we got into the weeds a little bit about what was objectionable about a trillion dollar company getting, you know, three, was it f billions of dollars in sub subsidies from New York State and New York City to, to come here and create jobs. Through what was essentially a non-democratic process. Yeah, you know, private agreement between uh, Andrew Cuomo, Bill de Blasio, and Amazon. And these are Democrats, by the way, one of which, I mean, Bill de Blasio touts himself as a progressive who doesn't always find democracy the best way to work. <laughs> well, you know, he's, 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 a, he's a solid neoliberal, um, <laughs> which is the inescapable private-public partnerships that uh, seem to dominate um, our, our society. And yeah. at cultural levels, uh, at the levels of education and healthcare, it's all public-private partnerships where somebody makes a ton of money. All right. Well, so to, to up, update everybody, last time we asked uh, artists and arts organizations to take a pledge. And that pledge read roughly as working art makers and arts organizations in uh, NYC, we pledge not to take any crumbs from Amazon. We reject any outreach from Amazon, including residencies, studios, performance spaces, or exhibitions. We don't want to help art wash or culture wash a dirty deal with Amazon by any quote unquote subprime offers to artists. And we don't and we won't give the city and state any cover by participating in any of their blatantly undemocratic closed door deals. What's bad for the community of LIC, the working poor and the working class is also bad for artists. Uh so what we wanted to talk about was some developments on that front, because as it turns out, Amazon is doing some outreach to who? Artists. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because, you know, I, I am, uh, we are both involved with the Artist Studio Affordability Project, and there's been a sort of flurry of emails back and forth. And I've read a little bit about uh, what's happening, but can you um, kind of lay out what what is going on right now? Can you explain me? Uh... Sure. So the district that I live in is Woodside, Sunnyside, and that's covered by Community Board 2. The community boards have no uh, binding vote in anything, but they do get to make recommendations, and they do give um, companies and other organizations kind of a measure of feel for how people on the ground are feeling about this. Um in my experience, in my neighborhood, there is not a, there's hardly a single person who um, is in favor of Amazon uh, moving into Long Island City because we live on an express uh, stop and um, all of our real estate is going to go through the roof and nobody likes that. And there are very few people who will get jobs out of this. And you know who doesn't like it at all? James Terrell. <laughs> You want to explain that a little bit? Um, his, I, you know, I should know the name of this piece after all these years, but um, essentially it's a skylight at PS1 where you can sit in and look up through a kind of hole in the ceiling and uh, it's an outdoor piece and see the, the color of the sky change from 
morning to dusk. And apparently a crane has kind of broken into the view of the plane (laughs) of color. And Terrell is now asked PS1 to close the piece permanently. Right. Uh, Well, not permanently through May or something till the... um... I, it's going to have to get closed permanently at some point because there's going to be a skyscraper in that window soon enough. Right? Yeah, well, then there goes the art. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Which describes the process of art and gentrification almost perfectly. Right. So Amazon has started to reach out. Um, and uh, I guess I don't know that they've made any official offers, but um, one thing that has happened uh in within my neighborhood and with the community board is the community board has all these different like subcommittees one of them is the arts and cultural affairs committee this is run by somebody who is not an art expert which is fine honestly there are a lot of people who get charged with things that they don't know that much about and then they learn but um what is less fine is that it never meets and suddenly has started to meet. Um, what are they meeting about? It turns out they are meeting about uh, Amazon and possible offers. Um, for this meeting, um, they produced an agenda in minutes, which normally are not shared. For some reason, this is being shared. Um, and what has happened um, is that... Uh, they are looking to uh, like identify arts organizations who could benefit from um, what ASAP has identified as uh, Amazon crumbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Amazon buys off the art community with 20 spaces and pushes out hundreds of people, uh, thousands really. And that's like, that's the price. So, um, you know, I think the things that sort of belie Amazon's um, meddling are the fact that this committee is kind of has not had any activity until now, despite the fact that there's been plenty of art that's happened that they could meet about. Mm-hmm. Um, now suddenly they're interested in participating. Um and then beyond that, there is the community board as a whole, which uh, the community board, too, I think I personally have some concerns about because uh, they they have I don't see them going in the right direction. The woman who is the chair has come out and described um, people who are against Amazon as extremists. Mm. You know, I don't think that that is an accurate depiction of what's going on. Meanwhile, we have people in our neighborhood moving out of the city entirely because they're being targeted by ice mm-hmm. um, and being forced out due to high rents. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that's going to have an enormous impact, not just on, on, on artists, but everybody. And, you know, the arts are being, I think one of, I'm sure other groups that are being targeted for these like small buy-offs yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's so many problems with the Amazon situation. And I think one thing we discussed earlier is just the fact that, it, again, it was a private deal, came from the top, and it's just sort of landing into an area of, you know, Long Island City's been experiencing kind of gentrification on steroids. But this is something completely different. This is like 
gentrification at warp speed. And uh, it's, it's coming at a time where, like, the community board, if it wasn't meeting before about arts and culture, there probably wasn't much money there. And, you know, again, we're, we're subsidizing Amazon's move-in. And now a private company is sort of dictating the terms in which money that discretionary funds that they have are going to be used to kind of prop up the arts. Um, and it's not being done in a really democratic way. I mean, I think the opposite of this community board meeting around Amazon and their money was the idea of the city developing its 10-year cultural plan and then watching people come together and create the people's cultural plan, which was asking for money to be redistributed sort of out of uh, Manhattan and the major museums into the boroughs, into communities, uh, and also not just saying, let's move the, the existing pot of money around. Let's get more money so yes, that we can do right. both because we have to be able to do that. And I guess what we're seeing is uh, uh, we're, we're seeing a kind of neoliberal form of democracy happening where there is some money being made available, but now it's being negotiated between Amazon and community boards, maybe some city input. You know, I mean, I, I know what the community board is supposed to do, but again, non-binding. They don't have a veto power over any of these decisions. And, it, it, you know, I think you put it best earlier. It's just backwards completely from the way in which democracy should work. And what's at stake are, you know, billions of dollars. I mean, the arts will always be a small part of that. Like, we can't even get de Blasio to commit 1% of the city budget to the arts. Not even a full percent, you know. It's like, we're, we're not there yet. Um, but, you know, I think, I think what ASAP and what we're sort of talking about is just not participating in this process for a, a very small amount of money which will, you know, be used as just one of the many levers by Amazon to uh, say that they're here to do good and they're here to support our communities. Right. When you just outlined a lot of things that, like, it's not going to help. Well, and I think, you know, the concern with the community board that I have is that they will see artists as whiners. You know, we're being offered something. Why? Why do you not want to take them up on this offer? And my response to that is, you know, when you are um, negotiating a deal, and this is not exactly a negotiation, we don't want them here at all, um, and we want to make that clear, and we you sh- but you start with what you want, mm-hmm. and then you work backwards, right? Because you can always ask for more. You can always ask for other things. But you fight for the thing you want first and then get the spoils, whatever they are, or you get the win. And I think that that's what we need to sort of recalibrate our um, expectations and, Mm -hmm. and minds towards is, you know, how do we fight for the things that we need and want and stop maybe being quite so fearful that we'll lose the small shreds of things that we have. Yeah, nobody was offering subsidized artist studios prior to Amazon's arrival. Nobody has been building, um, you know, like really affordable housing. And it's not like Amazon is going to provide these things. They will 
basically provide some crumbs that sort of nod in the direction and mostly, you know, sort of like appeasement. For and, a very short period and, of time. And I, I agree mean, with is... you about negotiations. I mean, we've, we've been we've been living the bizarro version of this, watching Donald Trump double down on his one demand for a wall and <laughs> will accept nothing less than, you know, a steel barrier. And, you know, the Democrats are now like, well, maybe we can do a smart wall. There'll be some parts of walls and there'll be drones and you know you can see the negotiation happening but he's we don't need a wall we don't need we don't need a wall and we don't need amazon um you know and we don't we certainly don't need amazon the way it is coming in you know we don't need the deal done this way yeah behind closed doors if it were done correctly it would have gone through the ulert process that we talked about the uniform land this was before the podcast started yes you know like um, it, it, there, there are mechanisms in place that allow for a democratic, open discussion to happen uh, before a trillion-dollar company comes in and and changes fundamentally the like the entire composition of of a community in an area of New York City. And you know the justification for it just becomes well, jobs, jobs, jobs. You know, it's like well, jobs for who? And you, Amazon is already they said at the last. Uh, yeah, I read oh, it. They are yeah, they are this... against union organization, and they will push back and fight against. They won't agree to a labor peace deal as part of coming here. So the kind of job, right? But I think Jimmy Van Bremer was saying, well, if they're not going to uh, agree to um, uh, having unions involved, then that's something that gives the the mayor a way out. Well, I hope the mayor is smart enough to really consider what um, inviting a company that um, is a sort of direct threat to mom and pop shops, commercial businesses that exist in New York, um, and is actively against unions, um, and whose labor practices in those warehouses are pretty wretched. You know, I mean, I keep hearing things like they will have ambulances outside the, the, the distribution centers to like rush people to the hospital because it's cheaper to do that than like uh, actually structurally change what they're doing inside those factories. All right. Well, this is terrible. I can't talk anymore about it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about something happier. Okay. Well, there, uh, I am happy to report that the group BFA, MFA, PhD has launched a series um, leading up to the publication of their book, uh, which I believe is called Making Meaning, And uh, over the next several months, um, they're going to be hosting a series of workshops around um, radical pedagogy and sort of teaching techniques that uh, in some ways, I think, are are sort of designed to help reform some of the institutional inertia and um, in some ways racial myopia at at art schools that tend to be very white. and the the first one that I went to was sort of structured around the idea of retooling critiques. And uh, it was a, a panel discussion that sort of centered around the work of, of uh, a student and several students at RISD. They, they made a, a movie called The Room of Silence. And it was a documentary um, featuring students of color who described the, the feeling of like, well, not the feeling, but the experience of going to a critique and presenting work that might be rooted in identity and being met with just silence and no feedback from faculty, from other students, in part because their work addressed issues of race or class or sexual orientation. And if it wasn't going to be part of like a kind of formal critique, the work was just, you know, um, not spoken about. 
And uh, the panel was joined by uh, some educators like Anthony Romero and a filmmaker named Billy Leaves, also a teacher. And they sort of shared some of that feeling of being faculty, um, people of color working at institutions where they may have been brought on as a kind of diversity hire. And and Anthony, uh, to you know, described this the whole panel that you know, he sort of described it as standing on quicksand. That there were so many sort of traps, and it was so fraught um, in so many ways, because you know he he sort of described the feeling that if you if you apply and are hired um, on a diversity line, there's like an invisible line on the job description that is like you are going to have to do more labor. Um, you're going to have to resolve and fix and solve all of these kind of um, uh, problems of diversity within our institutions. And we're probably not going to pay you anymore. We're not going to lower your course load for doing this kind of work. And if you do want to make changes within institutions, if you don't have tenure and you don't have that kind of like stability to, to rock the boat and push back against it, um, you may find yourself, you know, not asked back or you may lose your position and that you can't commit to like a kind of long-term institutional change. So hence quicksand. Yes. It's hence quicksand. Um, and that, that was sort of the part of the discussion that was rooted around, um, sort of positive things that educators can do, um, including really they sort of spent time talking around 11 different approaches, uh, to kind of our existing critique structure and institutions. And I think what's sort of great about what BFA, MFA, PhD is doing is they're, they're putting together workshops that are geared to sort of get past the problems, or if they're talking about such problematic things like standing on quicksand, that they're offering tools and supports uh, for people to try or introduce into their classrooms. So these the the events are free and open to the public. You just have to uh, reserve a spot on Eventbrite through, and you can find all of these on BFA, MFA, PhD's website. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to the publication for the book. And I do think that there is going to be, I know there's a, a kind of open town hall style um, event that they're going to be hosting, I think, in September uh, where they're inviting educators to come together and really sort of talk about some of these issues. So what days are, are these like weekday events? Are they weekend Generally events? Generally Friday evenings so people can attend uh, after work from okay. about 6 to 8. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I think it's sort of uh, uh, something that's deeply necessary um, for anyone involved in arts education. If you're a student thinking about going into arts education, if you're currently teaching, um, it, I think it's really important. And just to kind of anecdotally, um, one of my friends who's been applying for a lot of positions noticed recently that she was asked uh, on the job, the application to, there was an essay question of how her practice addressed racial equity and how her teaching methods addressed racial equity. And that was also one of the subheaders of BFA, MFA, PhDs, you know, whole workshop for the day was, you know, critique as another method of, you know, bringing greater racial equity into the room. And it, it, it came up, you know, when I was in the, the audience, many of us were white. And it seems to reflect a lot of the staff um, at the institutions I've worked at right. and taught at and been to. Um, and it, it came up that, you know, a lot of these conversations require a kind of racial stamina that a lot of us don't necessarily have, you know, because they are fraught and difficult conversations. And I think it's really important that BFA, MFA, PhD, 
you know, Carolyn Willard, Susan Jehoda, and Emilio Martinez, Papa, who are sort of the main core of that group, are creating open spaces where we can have some of these conversations to kind of start to shift away from some of the kind of defensive and reactionary positions that I think the art schools and, you know, universities often take when confronted by the stuff. We've, we've talked about some of this stuff, right? Like that school in the South that basically is trying to say art is everywhere, but we're going to start cutting art funding. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, so. Uh, was it Greensboro or yeah, Chapel think, Hill? Yeah. It was in North Carolina. Absolutely. So I think this is a great corrective and, um, the conversations are difficult, but deeply necessary. And so I really, you know, want to thank, um, Caroline and all, all the people involved in this for kind of continuing to do this work and making it publicly available. I will say it's a little bit odd to go to these events at Hauser and Worth. <laughs> I was going to say, do we uh, do we uh, concede that not all gallery mega galleries are are not evil? Um, I concede that they can do some good with their resources, but it gets <laughs> it gets us back to that 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 position that you know um, uh, it. I don't think it's a, a long term solution. You know, I would prefer to see BFA, MFA, PhD funded. Um, I would like to see their work happening and be supported by other institutions. It's just, you know, Hauser & Worth has a publishing arm. Um, There's, you know, some people that work there that are sympathetic and supportive of BFA, MFA, PhD. And so it's probably not my idea of the best location to do it. Um, But I concede that, uh, you know, um, I will keep going, you know, I'll keep attending the events and I won't let that, uh, that, that stop me from, um, doing the work that, you know, needs to be done. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I think, um, I think this is evidence that although the most visible position in America right now is filled by a total asshole, um, there are many good people in the world and yes. they are everywhere, and we just have to find them. Yeah, and we have to support them. And, and we that have to support kind them. Work. Yeah, absolutely. And so I let this be the final message of the podcast. Uh, for our next podcast, I I am assuming we will be updating you on the Mary Boone situation <laughs> and um, the Amazon situation and uh, various. I'm sure, arts we'll be talking about see. the Whitney. Yes, <laughs> again. All as right. Well. Until next time, friends. Until next time.